Amen. And so as we continue through the Psalms uh, and the 50s from 51 through 60, we continue, as we just sang, to, to read and sing about enemies, about troubles and trials, and it doesn't end here. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. We're in Psalm 58 this morning. These are the words of God. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No. In heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually when he bends his bow. Let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. So that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. And this is God's word. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, your word here is full of harsh words, strong and offensive. And they are in your holy hymnal. Reveal to us by your spirit understanding and lead us in learning how to pray and sing as you would. Do this in the strong name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I said, we've just been through a, a slew of psalms filled with troubles and enemies. We come to one of David's imprecatory psalms. Now, this is not just a, a psalm that has a, a phrase of imprecation. We've seen some of those. Uh, psalm 55, just a few weeks ago, says, Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. But this is an entire psalm all given to declaring and calling down curses upon the enemies of God. The prayer is for God to overthrow and judge the wicked. God's hymn book, this is God's hymn book, and it gives us songs to sing and to sing to and about our enemies. Not just about our enemies, but singing to, towards our enemies. Something that cannot be found in most modern worship books and services. This is what happens when you start singing the psalms. You start singing about things that, that you, you just don't find the, the contemporary world around us singing. The contemporary church is impotent before the culture, enveloping us, swallowing us up, kowtowing to secular mindset in the public square, that's us, or our own senses deadened by our own worldliness. And keeping our public worship just sweet and friendly and easygoing for everyone. Shouldn't it be entertaining? Shouldn't it just be uplifting? Shouldn't it just be simply inspiring? Isn't that the purpose of worship? That I would leave feeling worshipful? That I would leave feeling myself personally inspired? But God would have us publicly pray and sing against wicked rulers. He is the one who has written this hymnal. He is the one who has written these psalms. And they are psalms he wants us to sing. And he wants us to sing them with understanding. 
And so we give ourselves time to study them, to reflect on them, to consider what our mindset should be as we come to worship God. And we find that we are to, to be a people who, as we come together, have all of the whole scope of emotions, the whole scope of, uh, of circumstances in our lives, and the ability together to speak the words of Christ, to sing the words that he sings, to sing the words that are being sung in the heavens even today. And they are, they, are, they are the kinds of things that we are seeing, many of which we do and love, and some which are hard and difficult and need to be thought about. If, you, if, you, if you're not careful, you read something like this and you begin to think, well, that's not very Christian, is it? It's not, that doesn't seem like a, something a Christian should be singing. In 1980, the Church of England exempted its members from having to read Psalm 58 in worship. It was taken out of their lexicon as required reading in the church. But, but the Psalms, and, and the reasons behind that was that this, is not, that this shouldn't reflect what, we're, what, what we should be saying about the unbelieving or the wicked culture around us. But the psalm singer's anger reflects God's holy wrath and moral indignation presenting a vital warning to the wicked and perverse. Are we to have such anger? Are we, are we to give such warnings to the world around us as well? Are we to stand uh, uh, hating the things that God hates and then corporately declaring his hatred of those things and call on him to bring an end to such things? Or is that not our place? Is that not what we're supposed to be doing? Well, if it's not what we're supposed to be doing, then we should start doing what Thomas Jefferson and others have done. We'll just start ripping pages out of the Bible that we don't think are relevant to us today. But to do so is not, not only to, to do so is, is sinful, but to do so is arrogant. We begin to become, we become a people who begin to define who God is, who, what, what God is allowed to do, what God is allowed to say. Rather than coming here... In humility, responding to him, responding to his call to repentance, responding to his call to, to be done with our sins, and responding to his call that having received that forgiveness, having been lifted up in righteousness, we join with him in calling the world to repentance. We join with him in calling the world to declare his righteousness, his glory, his goodness, his existence, his sovereignty, his lordship, his kingship over everything. So this, this is God's language. This was the language and violent language of Jesus to the wicked rulers in his day. Matthew 23 records him turning to the, to the Pharisees and scribes, the elite, the religious, the rulers amongst the, the people of God, those that the people or the people of, of the covenant we're afraid of, we're, we're respecting, we're, we're following. And he turns to them because of their wicked teachings, because of their pride, because of their arrogance against God's word. And he says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he refers to them, he calls them sons of hell, fools and blind, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You see, they would, they would whitewash the tunes to make them look pretty, to make them look clean. And he's saying, that's what you are. You whitewash your outsides, trying to make yourself look pure and clean and so holy and religious. Inside, you're wicked. You're, you're full of death 
and uncleanness. And then he ends with the language that echoes this psalm, Psalm 58. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Serpents, that is you dragons, you devils. Brood of vipers, you poisonous asps, killing all around you. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Jesus could not abide their use of power to exploit the weak, to twist God's law to their own ends and perversions, and lead people away from himself, the promised Messiah. He promised certain wrath would come upon them. In the end of that discourse, in Matthew 23, he says, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's the language Jesus used when it came to speaking to wicked rulers. And so let's consider, is, is he being appropriate by seeing what his songbook has to say, particularly in this psalm, Psalm 58? It begins with an indictment of the malicious, an indictment of the wicked, an indictment to them. This is the charge against them. Do you, do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones, or to the congregation or the mighty ones? The translation is, is difficult. It has this idea of, 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 of the group of judges who sit over all of the people making their declarations and silent to any, of the, to, to any um, accusations against them or, or, or any coming back with charges of how you're, you're twisting God's law. You can't do that. It reminds me oftentimes of press conferences of, 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 of someone when there's some kind of wicked ruling or some kind of wicked rule or some kind of, um, some kind of law that's being broken and, and an absolute refusal on behalf of the rulers because they're in a place of power to answer the questions. To, to defend their position or, or, or to be honest about what is going on. It's, it's basically a rhetorical question here in, in verse 1. It, it should go something, might go something like this. Do you mighty ones silent against the evil you put forth in your courtrooms and legislative sessions? Do you speak righteousness? Because you constantly try to act like you are. You, you constantly try to act like what you're saying is good and right and lawful. And then he answers... No, no. And you know, he says, in your heart of hearts, you are putting forth wickedness. Your courtroom scales weigh out violence from your hands and laws. That's verse 2. They are doing what they, what they do naturally, he says in verse 3. From the womb, as all converted hearts go, speaking lies from the womb. This is our state. This is our natural state because of the fall. We are liars from the beginning. I don't know a single parent here who had to teach their children how to lie. They had to teach them how to do a lot of things, but lying just comes as natural as can be, right? And, and, it's, and it's true. E even in our sanctified state, what is it that we often have to do? We have to tell the flesh, no, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I have to stand and walk in the truth. Because by nature, we are liars because we are of our Father, who is the Father of all lies, the devil. And so if you, are, if you start on the path 
of lying, if you start on the path of, of, of declaring what you want to declare as good and what you want to declare as bad, and you're not brought face to face with the living God and convicted of your sin and granted the gift of repentance and faith, then you continue to haul yourself down this road of more and more wickedness. You put those kinds of people in power, and they are the ones who are going to, going to bring down all kinds of wrath, all kinds of evil, all kinds of wickedness upon, upon the people that they are, um, uh, they're ruling over. And they do so naturally. They do so naturally. That's verse 3. These are, these are lies parading, though. They're parading as righteous judgments from our caring leaders. But... As he says, they are poisonous lies that kill people, ruin lives, destroy justice, and pay off their supporters. Therefore, no honest arguments will be heard, and no testimonies of the harm done will be considered like a deadly but deaf cobra that will not respond to any charms. Verses 4 and 5. Protected in their places of power, they lie, and they refuse to answer questions. They refuse to enter into honest debate. The, the scales are not, weigh, they're, they're not even. They're not evenly weighed. The ones who are in power, if, if you do not have a transcendent law above you, if you do not have a transcendent personal God above you, then might makes right. That's just the way it goes. And when, when, we, when, we, when we try to play around with a secular world, a secular mindset, that in somehow we are going to be able to agree together about what is right or what is good or what is lawful, we're doomed. And we're seeing, we're seeing this being played out in our culture over these generations now. We're coming to the fruit of it. We're coming to the, to the very fruit of, of, of the lie of neutrality, the lie of neutrality in a secular humanist world. There is no such thing as neutrality here. It is all who is in power. And raw power then rules. Raw power does whatever it wants, and if you put raw power in the, in the, in the hands and hearts of unregenerate men, you, you, you're going to destroy your world. You're going to destroy your world all around you. And there's nothing new under the sun. David is writing about this in his day. That's what's going on. That's what he's singing about. So in our day, again, in our day, the lies come at us in a torrent, the political elites, the majority of mainstream media, the woke academia, and nationally acclaimed institutions, and elections that continue to put openly wicked men and women in places of power. They display these lies as righteous and good. They frame them in a language of we're doing something good for the people. Women's reproductive rights. Gender-affirming medical care. Lovingly redefining marriage, multicultural egalitarianism, and taxing the rich to pay their fair share. You can hear the polite applause. These voices, though, shout, you Christians are mean, intolerant, unloving. There is no place in the public space for God's word and laws. You people are not reasonable. You're not respectable. You are backwater folk with your guns and Bibles. You can see the stern faces looking at you, looking at us, shaming you. Meanwhile, they protect the slaughter of the unborn and the mutilation of the rest. Brothers and sisters, take out your Psalter.
Acts chapter 16. Verse 16, now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the python spirit met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days, but Paul greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What do you do when the enemies have you in their grip? What should the people of God do when the enemies of God have control? Verses 6 through 8. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually when he bends his bow. Let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman that they may not see the sun. If you have your Bibles when you see the inscription at the top of page uh, Psalm 58, you see the inscription is the same as the one is 57. I spoke about this last Lord's Day. There are these four psalms that have this inscription, do not destroy. And in all of them, there is the call for God to do the work of vengeance, not for us to take vengeance, but to cry out to God to take vengeance. We're not to seek revenge, but we are to turn to God for vengeance. Romans 12, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When you hear blasphemies, when you hear wickedness, when wicked rule takes place, one of the things that we ought to think about doing kind of corporately is taking a step back. When it, when it seems like there's an opportunity maybe to take revenge for something that has been done against you, I think this verse tells you, no, 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 make room. God says, I can do it much better. I promise to do it much better. You stand back. It's not that I do not like vengeance, says the Lord. It's that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I can handle this much better than you. And, and he, hands it, he handles it with holy anger. We are warned not to give a place for anger and wrath and to not let the sun go down on our anger. We can't handle even a righteous anger for long. It, it, it can grab hold of our pride. It can grab hold and make us bitter. It, 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 can, it can turn us into the enemy as well. So we turned it over to God. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. And so while these verses are full of violent pictures, it's kind of interesting to notice there's really two general prayers here in these pictures that are given. 
If they have no capacity for good, at least deprive them of their ability for evil. I think that's what's going on here. And so the first kind of prayer is a plea to destroy the ability of the wicked to harm their victims. Break their teeth. So this is not, you know, go up and punch them so to make sure that they really get hurt. No, the point is, break the teeth of the lions, the fangs of the lions. Take away their ability to hurt us. You see that? Remove their ability to, to hurt us. Let, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. They, they, they take out, they're ready to attack, they're ready to bring it down, and, and all of a sudden their weapons aren't working at all. Do that to them, Lord. And then the second is a request that God would remove the evil effects of the wicked and eradicate their corrupt legacy. Don't let it continue on. Bring it to an end and don't let, it, don't let any of the effects of it be carried on. So he says, let them flow away like water down a drain. Just, just pull the plug, God, and let it just go down. Let them melt away like a snail, leaving its slimy trail behind it. Like we're watching one of them big old northwest slugs going along the, the road, and you see that slimy trail. It looks like they're just melting away as it's going on. Where does all, where does all the slime come from anyway? I mean, if it just keeps going and going and going, there's going to be nothing left. That's the idea. That's the idea he's bringing to mind. Make them just melt away. Or even worse, even more violent, let them come to full term. Or let them never, I'm sorry, come to full term. Remove them like the abortions they promote. Bring upon them just what they are doing. What's our application in this? We're not to take our own revenge. But do we hate the evil in this world with the hatred God has for it? Do we, do we see the evil in this world and hate it the way God hates it? We certainly pray for the salvation of sinners. And we pray that even as God brings down wicked rulers or we pray against wicked um, actions that are taking place, we do pray that God would bring them down in such a way that convicting them of their sin and driving them to repentance just as he has done with us. We're sinners. We're sinners. But we are also to pray against the success of their sin. We want their clinics, their institutions, their academies, their legislative halls, their courtrooms, their churches closed, flattened, made impotent, and one day completely forgotten. We are to want God to do this, and we are to sing to him to do so. We are to pray in such a way. Let's take abortion for an example. We are not to go around and blow up abortion clinics. We are not to, we are not to assault abortion doctors. But we would pray that God would put abortion to an end. We do pray that God would destroy every abortion clinic on the planet, that he would do so. We do pray that God would cause them to leave and never return. We do pray that God would make them unsuccessful in their satanic schemes to kill the unborn, in their, in their twisting of laws and regulations and so-called rights. We do pray that God would let them fade away like a dissolving snail. We do pray that God would make them scarce and unseen like the aborted child itself. And so we pray these prayers. We're, we're told to sing in such a way. And then we are to look forward in faith and rejoice that God is sovereign, that he's right and righteous, 
that is, gra- that is greatly merciful. In fact, when we could, you consider all of the evil, and you consider the, the wicked rulers, and how many times God, ha- God has thrown down in history mighty, mighty forces by the stay of his hand. And you think about how often just the common grace that we enjoy keeps men from going all the way to, to, to be as wicked as they could be. This is, this is one of the purposes of the law of God, if you don't know. One of the purposes of God's law is a means of common grace to stop us from being as wicked, as evil, as selfish as we could be. The law helps the world in general not go as far as it would if God were to completely unleash us to our, to our own ways. And so, and so this psalm now turns... And, and I want you to notice, it is, it is though the psalm singer, not just the psalm singer, but this is supposed to be sung in the congregation. This means that the congregation now turns to the wicked and sings to them. As we're worshiping God, we're singing to them. Before your pots, before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with the whirlwind and in his living and burning wrath. Be done with it. So singing straight at the wicked. Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, the psalm singer displays his faith in God's coming vengeance. We are to tell them, we are to proclaim to the world that in a moment, when God determines that perfect moment, like a whirlwind, all of their dreams and attentions will vanish in his living and burning wrath. We have a God who operates in this world as a sovereign one, and he acts and moves whenever he wants. He moves the hearts of kings whenever he wants, however he wants. In Christ, all things cohere and are held together, and it is through his rule and reign that all things occur. He controls it all. And we are to sing like that. We are to act like that. We are to believe like that. The psalm singer anticipates rejoicing when he sees the vengeance of God. And how will he see the vengeance of God? Go back through the first verses again. He will judge their wicked plans worked out in backroom deals. Verse 2. Um, uh, he will rejoice when he sees God judge the, their pretense of uprightness. Verse 1. He will judge all the bald-faced lies and crooked, convoluted reasoning. Verse 3. He will judge their poison and their refusal to listen. Verses 4 and 5. He will do so in this life as he chooses and often does. Praise God for his grace. But nevertheless, if he doesn't in this life for them, he will do so completely at the final judgment. And here is what every wicked ruler needs to hear and remember. For all that he gains, for all that he is able to gather in for himself for power, everyone dies. Everyone dies. And when the wicked die, When the unregenerate die, when those who are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ die, it is like a sudden hit of the switch. Everything stops. That's what happens for the wicked. All their wicked power, all their wicked lies and laws, all their wicked wealth and influence, all their wicked titles, degrees and accolades, all their wicked reign, which lifted them up, Made them, gave them this sense of arrogance and protection, is gone in an instant. All of it. Swallowed up. Broken. 
melted away, aborted. Charles Spurgeon writes, every unregenerate man is an abortion. He misses the true form of God-made manhood. He corrupts in the darkness of sin. He never sees or shall see the light of God in purity in heaven. And this is why each one of us must be born again. This is why it is so important that we proclaim openly and honestly the full wrath and judgment of God over sin and the glorious opportunity for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord in the midst of any sin, in the midst of any long-standing sin, in the midst of however many numerous sins, to call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved. And on this side of the cross, on this side of the cross, we can understand this psalm in a greater light. We can understand that the righteous holy wrath of God was poured out, was fully poured out upon his son. And everything and more was done to his son that this, that this um, uh, psalm speaks of as he hung on that cross, bearing your sin, bearing my sin. And if you would believe upon him, he bore your sin. Believe he did. And on this side of the cross, understanding that and understanding the, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that has equipped us to be his disciples, to go out and live and proclaim the reign of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins to all who call upon him, and the work of the Holy Spirit promised in the preaching of those words, in the sharing of those words, in the living out of your testimonies to this world, in the work of God's Spirit, as you walk in the good works that he has proclaimed to you on this side of the cross, we have greater hope than David did. We, we see far more clearly than David did what God has done, what God is doing, and what God has promised that he is going to complete. The righteous, those who are covered in the blood of Christ's atoning work, will rejoice and then it says in verse 10, and wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And I'm, I think to myself, what? I'm supposed to sing that? But listen, listen to Paul for a moment. Paul says in Romans 9.22, what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if God rejoices in the destruction of the wicked? It's that, it's that, that is hard on our sensibilities. But over and over again, we see in Scripture... That when God, God doesn't put down the wicked and send them to judgment and then go home that evening thinking, man, we blew it on that one, didn't we? No, 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 no. No, and it is, it is hard to get your head around this. But God, what if God set apart from, set apart from ruined clay, from fallen clay, from dirty, rotten clay, and he takes some of it, and fashions it from what it is into vessels that he intends to pour out his holy wrath upon. Is he not God? 
in the declaration of his holy wrath. Look, you, we, we do rejoice. We do rejoice when we see some evil man put down, some wickedness stopped, right? Well, how much more, how much more shall the eternal, infinite, holy God rejoice in seeing the end of, uh, of wickedness put down and righteous justice, righteous justice brought to bear? You know, there's only, there's only one place in the New Testament where we hear the voices of the redeemed cry out hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It runs all through the Psalms. Only one place in the New Testament where the righteous saints are crying out hallelujah. And this is when John, the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is when John writes and tells us of the fall of Babylon in the book of Revelation. Babylon being, I believe, the spiritual, the, 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 the picture spiritually of rebellious Israel who had, who had put to death the Savior, who had, kill, who had killed the uh, prophets, who, who were persecuting the, the apostles, who by the time John had written, some of the apostles had already been killed, murdered, several had been uh, imprisoned. And, and what he writes is, um, he writes of the righteous are told, they are, they are commanded in, in Revelation 18, as Jesus brings his judgment upon the wicked, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And what happens? A great multitude sings. Revelation 19, after these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her. Again and again they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both great and small. And so the result then of, of such psalm singing, the result of such psalm singing is verse 11 so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges all the earth. God uses such prayers then to judge the wicked here, convicting them of their sin and eternal doom, and washes them, if he pleases, in the judgment blood of Christ, that they may have his righteousness. For is, you see, actually, in, in Romans chapter uh, 9, not only does it say taking that lump and creating vessels of wrath, but also taking from that lump and making known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. This is what God has done with humanity. Judgment is poured out, righteous judgment, God's holy wrath is poured out on all of humanity. And either you find yourself under the shadows of the wing of, of the almighty Christ, whose arms were spread and impaled on a cross, whose, whose crown of thorns were shoved upon his head, who bled so that you would not bleed, who suffered the righteous 
holy judgment of God so that you wouldn't. Or that same righteous judgment falls upon you all alone, without protection, without excuse. And so we sing, so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. Spurgeon again, verse 11, on verse 11 writes this. He says, all men shall be forced by the sight of the final judgment to see that there is a God and that he is the righteous ruler of the universe. Two things will come out clearly after all. There is a God and there is a reward for the righteous. Time will remove doubts, solve difficulties, and reveal secrets. Meanwhile, faith's foreseeing eye discerns the truth even now and is glad even now. Again, meanwhile, faith's foreseeing eye discerns the truth even now and is glad even now. The one who sings this psalm in faith sings, almost surprisingly, with glad-hearted faith in a righteous and good God. Congregational public singing is more powerful than our materialistic mindset fathoms. We, we, we want to pass laws. We want to, we want to uh, write opinion papers. We, we, we want to do all kinds of things. But if we're told what you should do is sing, like, what's that going to do? What's that going to do? Well, what did it do for Jehoshaphat when he, sat, when he sent his choir before the armies of God? out into battle. Oh, but that's just a quaint little Bible story, isn't it? Is it? Or are we learn something about the power of congregational singing? Should, should it change the way we think about what we do here and what it does to the world? Should we prepare ourselves more so that we come here and shake the world and we see God go forth and shake the world. Might we be invited with these kinds of psalms to believe and see that that is exactly what God intends to do with our worship? And would that change our mindset so, so we aren't just trying to, to have warm, fuzzy feelings of, of worshipful thoughts when we leave here and instead wonder how the world has been changed? Not just us. We need to be changed, yes, but how the world has been changed by our singing? Songs change the world. Songs change hearts. Songs declare warnings that must be heard by rebels. We're supposed to sing Psalm 2. Now therefore be wise, O God, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. We're, we're not to just sing. We, we sing that before God, but we're singing it out to the world. That's why this is a public worship service. While we are gathered together here, this is a public declaration of the kingship of Jesus all over the rest of the city, all over the rest of this land. This is, this is not our little holy huddle here where we're trying to get away from the world. This is where we are gathered together singing, not just to God, but to the world of his righteousness, of salvation that is offered in the gospel of Jesus, of a final judgment that will make all things right. 
Songs remind and revive the hearts of the righteous that there is a reward, that God is using his church by the Holy Spirit to spread his kingdom, that the, that the wicked will not prevail. So what are we to do? We are to love God. We are to love God, and we are to hate evil. And we are to love God and hate evil so much that we have to sing. Holy and almighty God, we live in a world of evil. Evil rulers, evil laws, evil hearts. In our situation, the church is so responsible, for we have compromised your word and led the way, often in open rebellion to your word, often in quiet refusal to proclaim you in your ways when wickedness abounds. Oh, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to repent. Teach us to sing like these psalm singers, hating sin, loving righteousness, trusting in your sovereign rule, and reign over it all. And then hear our prayers. Pour out your spirit. Save the poor and weak. Save the unborn. Return our land to the conviction of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and rule of our King and Kings and Lord of Lords, even Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.